0: My friends, Greg Kokel here, Stand to Reason, and we're going to devote this entire uh, hour to conversation with uh, a, a dear friend and uh, someone who's had a tremendous impact on the body of Christ for a long time. She is the uh, author of Love by Thy Body. Uh, she is the author of Saving Leonardo and Finding Truth and uh, famously Total Truth, uh, all award-winning best-selling books, uh, noted uh, by Christianity Today as one of the five top women apologists in the country. Uh, of course, I'm talking about Professor Nancy Piercy. And in my view, Nancy, you are the number one uh, woman apologist in the country. So you got the, the top votes for me. So glad to have you on board.
1: Thanks so much, and thanks for that compliment. I appreciate it.
0: Yeah, I think the last time we were actually together, uh, other than this time on screen here, was when we were in Israel together in, in twenty, 20 uh, nineteen. What a what an amazing trip, and uh, it was just great to kind of uh, sit in the bus together as we're traveling around and comparing notes. And it just uh, it was really a fabulous opportunity to get to know you better, and I really enjoyed that. Um, I want to start this book um, with the way you started it. Uh, this book we're talking about is The Toxic War on Masculinity, Subtitle: How Christianity Reconciles the Sexes. It is, in a certain sense, uh, I don't want to say a controversial book so much, uh, but a controversial topic, clearly, which I think why, is why you write the book. And just so you know, I, I'm not the only one on my team that has read this book. You get rave reviews from everybody. There's uh, The Bearded Beast over there. Kyle, he's given a thumbs up, and Amy's halfway through, and she's really, really enjoying it, and and I I the same. It's a complex book, though, because it's a complex issue. So we're going to hit some of these things. I want to start the way you start the book. And your first words, the first line, and, and I characteristically read first lines of books just to see how people launch their enterprise, and you did so well with this. Your line was, I had two fathers, a public one and a private one. One line, one paragraph, and then you go into your story. Tell us what, tell us about your story a little bit as you launch this book on toxic masculinity.
1: Yes, I do start the book with a story of my own life because I had a very abusive childhood. My father was severely physically abusive. In books on abuse, they sometimes ask, "Was it open hand or closed fist?"
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: it was closed fist. Mm. Um, he he was punching us and kicking us, and um, it it is. A good reason why I started asking questions about Christianity as I got into high school, because my parents were very strong Lutherans. I don't know if you know this, but all Scandinavians are Lutheran, uh, the way okay. that all Irish are Catholic. Oh, gotcha. <laughs> my dad's Swedish, my mom's Norwegian, so what yeah. I, What else are we going to be? Uh-huh. Um, but it is. Uh, it, it was a big part of my um, trying to understand this topic, because of course— As you might expect, um, as I grew older, I went into the radical feminist stream and read all the major books on feminism. Uh, For years, I considered myself a feminist, Mm -hmm. which is, I think, a natural reaction to feeling like, you know, men are evil because I had such such an abusive father. Right. And so... It was um, the way I, I put it in the introduction to the book is in one sense, I've been writing this book my whole life
2: mm-hmm.
1: because it's taken me that long to really figure out uh, a positive biblical understanding of masculinity. Mm-hmm. And, and, and a lot of people have said that it gives the book a somewhat more credibility. Mm-hmm. Uh, a psychologist reviewed the book for Amazon and uh, mm-hmm. he said, well, we know she's not writing from an ivory tower.
0: <laughs> That's right.
1: <laughs> she's writing well, from the trenches.
0: It was a, it was a, jo- I mean a. Uh, almost literally a jaw-dropper for me. You had me from the very first sentence, uh, because, you know, we've known each other for a number of years. You, you don't remember the first time that I met you, but I do, and that was in the early 90s uh, with Chuck Colson when you were working with uh, that enterprise. I was actually being interviewed by Chuck for as, a, as one of the of, stable of writers uh, that did uh, Breakpoint, and uh, it was not a successful interview, you know, passed me over. But he passed me on to you, and I guess he let you let me go. But uh, that was my first encounter with you then. And then, of course, we've, we've had times to touch base ever since then um, and been on the show. But it was, this was a jaw dropper to me. And because um, it's very easy to have a image in your mind of the public persona of of an individual and not realize the, 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 the experience that they actually bring to the table in this whole enterprise. And so I think it does add more credibility. And the one thing I want to focus in on, not to belabor this particular point, but what you said was a public one and a private one. Now, you just mentioned in private what your father was like, but he was very different in public. And I think this contrast is a, is a big part of how you position your material in the book on toxic, the toxic war on masculinity. So tell us about that, too.
2: Yeah, good
1: point. So he was a university professor. He taught mathematics. And then as computers were invented, uh, he taught MIS, management and, and information systems. Mm-hmm. And he taught all around the world. So we lived in Germany where he taught. We lived in Norway. He taught for several years at the Middle East Technical University, which is in Ankara, Turkey. So he was a very well-respected professional in his field and, you know, very polite, very uh, um, appealing, very charismatic. So I don't think anyone ever Mm -hmm. um, guessed uh, what he was like at home. And I think that's important, like you say, because, again, we, we tend to judge people by how they appear and I have to tell you the one thing. You will appreciate this. There was one person who saw through him,
2: hmm.
1: and that was somebody at Brie. We were talking before going on air about how we had both visited Brie in times past, hmm. and I was there the first time in
2: 1971.
1: Mm-hmm. And the, the people sometimes ask me, why did you go to a Christian ministry if you were not a Christian?
2: Mm-hmm. And the
1: answer is that actually my parents were passing through Europe, um, on the way home from Turkey, <laughs> um, when um, and they were they were driving through Libri, and they was, they stopped at Libri as sort of one of the first generation of touristy Christians, right? Who who went through Libri?
0: Yeah, that was and, kind of the way I was in '76 when I came through. Yeah, it was like I'd already familiar with Dr. Schaefer and his books and everything. I just wanted to kind of stand on that holy ground a little bit when I and I benefited from interactions there with the with the team, whatever. But go ahead.
1: Yes, yeah. So my parents, I was going to school in Europe at the time uh, in Germany. We had lived in Europe when I was a child, and Mm -hmm. so I had gone back. And so it wasn't that much to say, "Hey, come on down. You know, we're in Switzerland. Come on down and see us." And so that's why I went to La Brie, not to go to a Christian ministry. I had no interest in that. Um, I I had given up my faith halfway through high school, so it had been several years ago. But I went there to see my parents, and. Um, this is a part of my time at Brie that I reveal for the first time in this book because I've talked before about how I became a Christian ultimately through Labrie, through Fran- Francis Schaeffer's apologetics. You know, it's, it really spoke to me. It took two trips, two visits to Labrie, a, a year and a half apart. Yeah. Um. But it was the apologetics that Francis Schaeffer wrote so much about and spoke about that persuaded me that Christianity was true. And so mm-hmm. it's a key part of my conversion. But what I tell in this book for the first time is it was also the beginning of that emotional, psychological, spiritual healing from my childhood trauma. And when, uh, when my parents came in, you know, Dr. Shaver used to have a Saturday night discussion. All right. And so, of course, that was what my parents came to that first night when we were there.
0: Is that what he did at... by the fireplace there in the chapel? Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I was at uh, one yeah. of those as well. Yeah, and everybody sits on the floor. Yeah, at least when I was there. I don't know how was it was at your time. But your your dad came to that, you're saying, right? And you...
1: Right, right. So, you know, we, we just arrived and we came to the uh, Schaefer's uh, fireside chat. Right. <laughs> um, and um, and on staff at Labrie was a psychiatric social worker. Uh, her name was Sheila Bird, and we called her Birdie. Mm-hmm. And it was Sheila Bird who helped me to really start on the whole process of applying my Christianity, not just to the mind and the intellect, but applying it to the heart, Mm, you know, and to the mm. trauma of my childhood. But here was the interesting thing. As our family walked in that night, she looked at my father. She told me this later. Mm. She looked at my father and she said, there is a man who oppresses everyone around him.
0: Oh, my goodness.
1: So she saw it.
2: Mm.
1: So when I started going to talk to her, she knew why yeah. I was there. Wow. <laughs> I didn't even have to tell her. She knew I was there because of my father. Yeah. And I thought that was fascinating. I've, as far as I know, she's the only person who's ever seen through, you know, his, his glossy professional exterior.
0: Right, right. And plus he was a churchman and had oh. a role in church there, Right.
1: I, I obviously, I should have mentioned that. Oh yes, uh, uh, that was part of the being Lutheran. <laughs> yeah. You went to church every Sunday, no matter what. I mm-hmm. mean, absolutely rigorous church attendance.
0: Mm-hmm. So, in and, one... and
1: Christian school, Lutheran school. I, I should add, I went to Lutheran elementary school. Um, so, yeah, we were we were Lutheran. Died in the wool.
0: <laughs> so it's it's not surprising then that as you said, in high school, you would have given up your faith, and now you're looking for something else, and you're moving to feminism entirely predictable under those circumstances. The reason I'm fo- focusing in on this is I do think this public one, private one, th- this motif here that it really—I hear the echoes of that throughout the book as you're talking about the problem of uh, toxicity, male toxicity, which is clearly a problem, but I think it's deeply misunderstood, and you do such a superb job of parsing out the details— Historically, and also this curious thing about Christian uh, Christian dads who could be, you know, uh, good good dad, bad dad, you know, kind of thing like you experienced. And I and this, of course, has given a bad face to Christianity, which is why you left Christianity to begin with. That would be my takeaway from that experience. Would that be fair?
1: Yes. Um I don't want to make it sound like it was just an emotional reaction because I had genuine questions as well. Yeah. I'll I'll tell you, um, when I first started asking questions, about ha- halfway through high school, I literally went to my father and I said, why are you a Christian? He said, works for me. Mm. <laughs> that's it? You're a university professor? That's the best you can that's do. That's all you've got? Yeah. And uh, I had a chance to talk to a seminary dean. I don't Uh always say this, but this was an uncle, a Lutheran (laughs) uncle. And um, I thought I might get something more substantial. But all he said was, don't worry, we all have doubts sometimes. Yeah. So this was the quality of the answer that I was getting. And so Uh I did finally think, well, I guess maybe Christianity just doesn't have any answers. Yeah. And that's when I walked away from my faith very intentionally. I didn't just drift, right? I very intentionally said, "If if I... If I if I don't have any good reasons to believe it, then I shouldn't say I believe yeah, it. Whether yeah. it's Christianity or anything else,
0: yeah. And there were there, so was, there
1: was, were, I'm sorry. So there were definitely intellectual questions. then as I as I adopted all these secular isms mm-hmm. um, until I went to Libri.
0: So and uh, and you know there is some wisdom in the response as far as it goes that everybody has doubts, but the problem is is. It goes further than that, and there are ways to reconcile doubts too, you know, in people's hearts, and there are answers to questions and stuff, and and that sometimes is a dismissal that doesn't ultimately help, you know.
1: But it came across as it's just an intel, it's just a psychological phase that you're going. Yeah,
0: through. that's right.
1: And uh, you you'll outgrow it, don't worry.
0: Yeah, <laughs> right. So um, uh, the, the like I said, the reason I, I mentioned this is because there was this this contrast, and 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 of course. Um, because people have experience with uh men being toxic in the expression of their masculinity um there's a there's a generalization of that toxicity not just to men but especially to Christian men, which you develop in your book so um let me ask you this question um, how would you characterize um the 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 so called problem of toxic masculinity that we hear about currently in our culture that you seek to remedy remedy or at least to clarify in the book I mean what is it that people see there that they're being confronted with that you are seeking to clarify and address and b- bring some substance of understanding to?
1: Yeah. Um... That, that's such a broad question, and can I answer that historically? I mean, a lot of the book deals with the historical development of a toxic or secular view of masculinity. Okay. And one one part of that, one of the most important parts of it was um, the rise of Darwinian evolution. And a lot of us don't realize that. We think of evolution in terms of fossils and genes and scientific mm-hmm. questions, but we don't realize that it had an enormous impact on people's view of of masculinity, hmm. so Darwinian thinkers began to say the the men who came out on top in the struggle for survival mm-hmm. would by necessity be rough, ruthless, rugged, brutal, savage, barbarian, mm-hmm. and even predatory. Mm. And so they said, you know the. The your true masculinity, your true nature is getting in touch with the beast within. Mm-hmm. And so whereas Christianity had urged men to live up to the image of God in them,
2: mm-hmm.
1: Darwinian thinkers began to say, no, you know, your true authentic nature is the animal within. And uh, by the way, Darwin also did say that women are intellectually inferior to men. Mm-hmm. So he has some, some responsibility for that part of toxic masculinity as right, well. Right, right. But the um, social Darwinism has come back in our own day. It's not just historical, but it's now called evolutionary psychology. Right, right. You know, the idea of the body evolves, this so does your psychology. All mm-hmm. your thoughts and feelings have to evolve. And evolutionary psychologists are still saying that men are by nature crude, rude, and lewd. Mm-hmm. So there was a, a best-selling book, best-selling, called The Moral Animal. Mm-hmm. And the author says... The human male is a an obsessive, oppressive, flesh obsessed pig. Giving him a book on how to have a good marriage is like giving a Viking a book on how not to pillage.
0: Yeah, right. That is that Robert White. Uh, I'm trying to think. Robert
1: White. Yeah. 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 I
0: I actually uh, I have that book. I've read the book mm-hmm. and used it in some other writings I've done. But yeah, this is what follows, and a lot of folks don't think about the entailments that. That are involved in certain worldviews. And so social Darwinism is another expression of this kind of thing that actually was coincident with the Industrial Revolution at its peak. And you talk a lot about that. Before I get to that, though, I want, I want you to tell us another story, because this is a, these, it's a story in contrast, and it's of contrast of two different understandings. And it's something very close to me, because the borderline bar is a mile and a half from my house from 19, uh, 1917, was it? Or 28, I'm sorry, not the Borderland Empire and that killing that was done there, which you cite there. And I, this choked me up to recall this event that was so big, right? In our, my wife used to go dancing there, you know, and uh, you know, line dancing was a you know country and western bar. But there was a famous killing there in 2018, um, and uh, a group shooting. But there were th- th- there was two ways to understand that. And you told a side of the story. There's one type of masculinity that was expressed in the killer, but there was another type of masculinity that was also expressed in some others, particularly one man by contrast. And I, do you recall the, that account well enough to be... Yeah, oh, please. Oh,
1: yes. Yes, because I start the book with that. You know, you want to start a book with something intense and grabs the reader. Well, I've had a lot of people tell me that grabbed them. That's right. <laughs> it did it did the job. Uh, because it was, it was a famous, you know, mass killing in a bar. And the, the killer was a young man... Uh, in his early 20s, 23, I think, Ian David Long was his name. Former Marine, divorced, living in his mother's basement. I mean, all the typical failure to launch stereotypes mm-hmm. right there. And he came into the bar one night when he knew it would be full of, of college students and you know, threw smoke bombs to cause confusion and then just started firing into the crowd. In the bar that night was a young man named uh Wennerstrom. what was his first name Wenstrom Matt Matt mm-hmm. Wenestrom, and he was 21 and he was a college student and he immediately as soon as the shots started booming out he he grabbed a bunch of people put them under a pool table for protection. Mm -hmm. And then when the shooter stopped to reload, Mm -hmm. he broke a back window with a bar stool and started shepherding people out.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: He and a couple of other young men, and they kept coming back into the bar as often as they could to bring more people out. And by the way, the shooter finally shot himself.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And it was fascinating to read the interviews. On the night of the shooting, people asked Matt Winestrone how did you have such mental control you know to 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 respond so effectively and to save so many lives and he said he said i know where i'm going when i die mm. so i wasn't mm. worried about it mm-hmm. you know i'm okay if i die yeah. because i know where i'm going yeah. now anyone who reads this who's a christian knows exactly what he meant by that
2: right right
1: what he meant was he he knew he was a christian and mm-hmm. and then he did comment um this, this comment got dropped from the story, but then he talked about how we were still praying for the people who were still missing.
2: Mm-hmm. So Well you described It was
1: clear. It was clear yeah, I, I open it with okay, two different versions of masculinity. One used his masculine strength to take lives,
0: mm-hmm. the other
1: used his masculine strength yeah. to save lives.
0: There there is a portion of that description though where there's a kind of a huddle while the bullets are flying. Do you remember that? Can you tell us about that?
1: Well, one of the young women who was um, interviewed afterwards, it was, I, I think she was the one who was there for her birthday. There was a birthday celebration. Uh-huh. And she commented han how not only Matt Wennerstrom, but also several other young men um, huddled around. The, earlier I said they, were, they, they pushed them under a pool table for protection, and right. then they huddled around them. And she says, every one of those young men was ready to take a bullet for us. Yeah. She, she's like, whoa. Now this, this is... What's the opposite of toxic masculinity?
2: Yeah, right. This is the
1: opposite. These are men who are willing to take a bullet to protect innocent people.
2: Mm
0: -hmm. So you make this distinction, this is a good illustration of it, of the distinction between a good man and a quote-unquote real man, a kind of understanding of masculinity that kind of developed out of a variety of social pressures that has created all kinds of confusion. Uh, And you also give a a magnificent... uh, anecdote in there about the, t- the Men's Titanic uh, Society, I think you call it, and to celebrate those men on the Titanic who essentially did the same thing, women and children first, were going to stay and go down with the boat, and how these men are are, are toasted on a regular basis by the society to, re- to re- reflect the mas- the genuine, good, virtuous, heroic, deep masculinity of these men that were willing to go down with the ship um, and let the women and children be, be rescued. This is a contrast that you really demonstrate or you you trade on throughout your book as you're looking at these social factors.
1: Right. So this was, I'll give you a little bit of the background that's that's not in the book, um, because as you noted, it's the most controversial book I've ever written, mm. which did surprise me, because I really thought Love They Body would be more controversial. Mm-hmm. It covers topics like Abortion, homosexuality, transgenderism, which is really mushroomed now. Um, But this one was more controversial. And um, I I ran lots of classes on it. I I led lots of reading groups because I like to get feedback, you know, rub off the rough edges. But when they would talk to their family and friends about reading a book on masculinity, invariably, the first question was, whose side is she on?
2: Mm -hmm. You know, with that
1: tone, (laughs) whose side is she on? And, uh, men tended to assume I was some kind of male-bashing feminist. Mm-hmm. More progressive people tended to assume I was some angry, defensive reactionary.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And, and so I had to rewrite, you, you'll get, you'll appreciate this, mm-hmm. great, I had to rewrite chapter one multiple times to sort of get over that initial hostility right. coming from both sides. And so I put this study right at the beginning, uh, the good man versus the real man that you just described. So this is a study by a, a sociologist, he's not a Christian, but he's very well known in his field. And so he gets invited to speak all around the world.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: so he came up with this clever experiment where he would ask young men two questions. First, he would ask them, what does it mean to be a good man? If you had a funeral, for example, and in the eulogy, somebody says he was a good man, what does that mean? And the sociologist said all around the globe, young men have no problem answering that. They immediately start saying things like honor, duty, sacrifice, uh, integrity, do the right thing, be a provider, be a protector, be responsible, be generous. And he'd say, Well, we're learn that. Mm-hmm. And the young men would say, It's just in the air we breathe.
2: Yeah.
1: Or if they were in a Christian country or a Western country, they would say, It's, it's part of our Judeo Christian heritage.
0: Mm-hmm. Which is true. But
1: then he would, it, 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 that's cool, right? And then he would ask us a follow up question. He'd say, Well, what does it mean if I say to you, Man up, be a real man? And the young man would say, Oh, no, that's completely different. Mm -hmm. That means be tough, be strong, never show weakness, suck it up, play through pain, um, win at all costs,
2: Mm -hmm.
1: get rich, get laid. Mm -hmm. I'm using their language. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And so, what the sociologist concludes is that men everywhere do know what it means to be a good man. It's an innate, inherent knowledge. As we would say, men are made in God's image, and they do know what it means to be a good man. Romans too, like right? we all have a conscience, but they feel social pressure to live up to quote unquote, the real man, which are traits that are, can, can be more toxic, mm-hmm. especially if it's, they get decoupled from a moral ideal of a good man, they can uh, become you know, sexually exploitive, entitlement, co- coercion and control.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So, I, I put it in the front of the book to help people realize we're not we're not for or against masculinity wholesale.
2: Right, right. We all
1: want to support the good man, mm-hmm. and and it's perfectly fine to critique the real man, the cultural message of the real man. It also gives us a more positive way to deal with these issues because most men don't respond well to being called toxic.
2: Yeah, <laughs> strangely <laughs> enough, <laughs> surprise, so what surprise.
1: It does mean, <laughs> <laughs> Excuse me. It does mean, though, that we he gives us the tools to tap into and affirm and support mm-hmm. their innate knowledge of what it means to be a good man. And if we can do that, we have a much more positive approach to these issues.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: You, you mentioned innate knowledge. I, I think that's um, exemplified by, in a certain sense, the automatic response of the men at the borderline bar to do what they needed to do to, to protect those who are more vulnerable. Uh, I mean, you're going to have some guys that are going to run through the window. Thanks for breaking the window. I'm out of here. You know, I'm first one out, you know, but but then you're going to have a lot of people who, who are men who, in this in innate knowledge, uh, this – understanding that they were made a different way than women and they have a different role in virtue of that it's the it's the way God structured the world for human flourishing is the way I put it you know and each has different uh, roles and and place it, things they do best and and not that women obviously can't be courageous I mean one of my favorite movie characters is is uh Ripley uh, in the alien series you know and there's a there is a, a a strong, powerful woman, but it it, it in the, not the least bit in the way she's characterized by Ridley Scott there as a as a, an in opposition to true manliness, but a woman who rises to the occasion with bravery, and women do this all the time. But there just seems to be this additional element of the man being the hunter, gatherer, protector, provider, and mom being the nurturer type, and so uh, and the, and these uh, what what I see throughout the book is this kind of contrast in and between the 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 good virtue genuinely the virtuous man and the so-called real man. There was a time, though, in history where – and this is uh, – you can talk about this a little bit – when there there was not a big difference between that. Pre-industrial time, the, the good man and the virtuous and the real man w- were the same thing. I, I think – I even tell my girls sometimes to man up. But what I mean by that I – I have girls that don't have boys. But I, I, what I mean by that is, look, you gotta have to step up to the challenge and do what's right. You just have to do what you need to do because it 's the right thing to do and 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 but I understand that this is characterized in very different terms nowadays. So talk a little bit about the pre industrial society and what men were like then
1: yes, and actually, before I go there um, i 'll give you one more study just because it 's so cool um, another global study because uh, it helps us understand these it 's not just Christian insight, this really is inherent. And this was by an anthropologist. He did the first ever cross cultural study of concepts of masculinity. And he found that no matter how cultures define masculinity, you know, some cultures are more warlike and others are more peaceful, mm-hmm. but they all share that the idea that a, a man is called to do what he called the three Ps provide, protect, and procreate. That is, be a father, mm-hmm. build into the next generation. And the, again, I was just stunned when I read that because it shows that this isn't an an, an an innate knowledge, mm-hmm. an inherent knowledge that men have, that their unique masculine strengths, I and mean, men are bigger, stronger, and faster than women, but the, those unique strengths are given them not just to get whatever they want, but to provide, protect, mm-hmm. and build the next generation. mm mm-hmm. And, and you're right, it was, more, it was easier to see during the pre-industrial age because men worked alongside their wives and children uh, in the family farm, the family industry, the family business. And so the cultural expectation on men was much more geared toward caretaking. Mm-hmm. You know, you're responsible for raising your children day by day uh you especially your sons you were raising them with the skills they needed to be to become successful adults um you're working with your wife you can't snap at her
2: mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> so the caretaking role was very much emphasized and in fact this was a real shocker most books on parenting like sermons pamphlets advice manuals were written to fathers mm-hmm. Not to mothers, as most of them are today, but were written to fathers because fathers were expected, number one, to have the primary responsibility, especially for intellectual and spiritual development of their children.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And number two, they were expected to be just as involved with their kids as, as mothers were. Mm-hmm. There was no sense that, that fathers were somehow the secondary parent like, like today. Uh, so that was really a, a real surprise for me to find out. They, and they actually used the word house father. Today we talk about housewives. Yeah, back then it was fairly common to talk about house fathers.
0: And it wasn't it wasn't a like a Mister Mom kind of feel about <laughs> right. it. This was a standard a standard responsibility that the men had. and They stepped up to it.
2: And of no course, you know,
0: this,
1: they were making their way in a wilderness, so they still had the very more traditional masculine uh, qualities like courage and resilience and hard work.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but where did we lose all this? The Industrial Revolution took work out of the home. Mm-hmm. And of course, men had to follow their work out of the home into offices and factories. And for the first time in American history, they were not working alongside people that they loved and had a moral bond with. Mm-hmm. Instead, they were working as individuals in competition with other men. Mm-hmm. And that's when you see the language start to change. Hmm. In the literature of the day, people started to protest that men were losing that caretaking ethos Mm -hmm. of the colonial era, that they were becoming self-interested, egocentric, um, aggressive, assertive, get get ahead at all costs, look out for number one.
0: Right, right.
1: Greedy and acquisitive, to use some of their language. Um, And so this is the first time that you start to see negative characterization of the male character. Mm-hmm. So people who think that the concept that masculinity is toxic started with, you know, the 1960s, maybe, second wave feminism, need to realize, no, it actually went much, much further back. People mm-hmm. were very concerned about the male character already in the early 19th century.
0: You know, when you talk about the role the fathers played in families uh, prior to the industrial period, the the, uh, the industrial launch, uh, say pre-Victorian, we'll just call it, And uh, you have these uh, beautiful images in your book, uh, you know, things that were produced, pictures of families working together and praying together and doing that. And there's dad at the head of the whole thing. Well, I had two reactions. First of all, I read these awful stories like the abuse you faced in your childhood, and, and others as well, and there, there are other characterizations of that side of humanity. I thought, well, I'm not such a bad dad, you know, because I'm not doing anything like that. And then I read all the ways that fathers were so deeply integrated in the development of their family, the values, and the spiritual things, and I thought, man, I'm really a lousy dad kind of thing. Now, later in the book, there were some really good things that were instructive to me and we we'll get to those as well in that regard but um I do want before we get too much into the development of this understanding of male toxicity etc um and how it kind of seeped into culture and there was this conflict between the sexes that took on very very different characteristics as time went on um I I want to mention I want you to mention something about the statistics comparing um uh, the twofold set of statistics comparing Christian men, Christian fathers, Christian husbands, to non-Christian fathers, husbands, etc., um, because this was a stunner for me, and it really explained a lot. So go ahead. You know what I'm talking about. I see your big smile there. Yeah, it was a big. It was probably a big revelation to you as well when you discovered this in your research.
1: Oh, absolutely, because we've all heard the media narrative that Christian men, evangelical men, are exhibit A of toxic masculinity, Mm -hmm. right? That if you believe in any form of male headship in the home, uh, that will turn you into an overbearing, tyrannical patriarch,
2: Mm.
1: oppressive to women. Um, Barefoot and
0: pregnant wives kind of thing, yeah, right? Yeah, the, the stereotype, right.
1: I'll give you just one quote. It was easy to find quotes uh, with a quick Google search, so I'll give you just one. So this this was the co-founder of the Church Two movement, which followed the Me Too movement, and she says the theology of male headship feeds the rape culture mm. that we see permeating American Christianity today. Mm. So the trouble is that social scientists, psychologists, sociologists. We're looking at these accusations and saying, where's your evidence? You're making these charges, where's your data? And so they went and did the studies. And in my book, I cite some dozen or so studies where what they found is the exact opposite of what the media narrative is. They found out to their own surprise that uh, evangelical Christian men who actually live out their faith, you know, who, who are committed, who attend church regularly, Test out as the most loving husbands and fathers. Based and on reports way, the,
0: from their wives and children, basically.
1: But, but, uh, well, the pushback I get, by the way, often is uh, it, they, they assume these were studies done by Christians. And they yeah. say, well, of course, the the wife's going to say she's happy. Her husband's sitting right there next to her. Yeah. No, that's not what these were. These were large secular uh, databases mm-hmm. that are drawn on by policymakers, journalists, and others. So... These were not done by most of the. I have a variety of studies, but most of them were not done by Christians. And so, yes, so they're asking the wives separately. Mm -hmm. And it's the wives who are reporting the highest level of happiness with their husband's expression of love and affection.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Evangelical husbands spend the most time with their kids in terms of uh, both shared activities like sports and church youth group. And in terms of discipline, like enforcing screen time or bedtime. Mm -hmm. And... Evangelical couples have the lowest rate of divorce of any major group in America and then the real surprise they have the lowest rate of domestic abuse and violence mm. of any major group in America.
2: Mm.
1: Sometimes a single quote can can kind of crystallize it. So let me give you a quote on that. Okay. Um so this this is my go-to sociologist. He did the largest study. His name is uh, Brad Wilcox at the University of Virginia. And to give you a sense of his stature, he writes in places like the New York Times. So this is a New York Times article in which he said, it turns out that the happiest of all wives in America are religious conservatives. And of course, they look especially at the wives to mm-hmm. see whether their husbands are these oppressive patriarchs.
2: Mm-hmm. But
1: the happiest of all wives in America are religious conservatives. Fully 73% of wives who hold conservative gender values and attend religious services regularly with their husbands, have high-quality marriages. Mm -hmm. And then, actually, my favorite part of the quote is this. He then turns to his colleagues, who are mostly secular, um, at the University of Virginia, and he says, academics need to cast aside their prejudices Mm -hmm. against religious conservatives and evangelicals in particular. Conservative, Protestant, married men with children are consistently the most active and expressive fathers and the most emotionally engaged husbands. Mm -hmm. So even Christians don't know this. I had to go digging into the academic literature to find this. It's not made its way into the popular realm yet. And so it really was the decisive um, point. Where I decided I have to write this book,
2: mm-hmm. I
1: wanted to get this information out into the churches where men can be encouraged. Mm-hmm. Because even in in Christian churches, men often uh, I feel beaten down. When I told my um, class I was writing a book on masculinity at at Houston Christian University, a male student shot back, "What masculinity? It's been beaten out of us." Mm. <laughs> Okay, so even even in Christian circles, men right. are feeling that sense of, you know, uh, to- masculinity is being derided as toxic.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, I'll
1: give you a quick anecdote. This was my—one uh, of my um, graduate students is um, head of women's ministry in a large Baptist church, and she said to me, on Mother's Day, we hand out roses and tell mothers they're wonderful. Yeah. On Father's <laughs> Day, we scold the men and tell them to do better.
0: Yeah, that's right. So i but now there 's a certain sense though, and your own home life is an example of that, where this characterization of christian families is is not uh quite accurate. And you you were very careful to qualify this. These are evangelical Christian people who, in a word, are living out their Christian convictions in a real way in their lives. And therefore, they represent the best of the best when it comes to marriages. But there is a whole other strain of, uh, let's just put scare quotes here around the word Christian uh, fathers and families that do not fare as well as what you described. Tell us about that.
1: Yeah, so the first uh, pushback I often get is, well, haven't we all heard that Christians divorce at the same rate as the rest of the culture?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And in fact, in my research, I found that that was one of the most widely quoted statistics by Christian leaders. And so the researchers went back to the data, and they did that important distinction that you just mentioned. Mm-hmm. They pulled out the men who are attend um, reg- you know, church regularly and really are committed Christians over against Nominal Christians. By the way, my students don't even know what nominal means, so I have to explain.
0: Oh, gosh. (laughs) Uh,
1: N-O-M is Latin for name, so Uh in name only. And these are men who might uh, check the Baptist box, for example, on a survey like this, Mm -hmm. but who uh, don't actually attend church, rarely if at all. Mm -hmm. And they test out shockingly different. Their wives report the lowest level of happiness. With their husband's treatment of them. They spend the least amount of time with their children. They have the highest rate of divorce, even higher than the secular world. And the real shocker is they have the highest rate of domestic abuse and violence, even higher than the secular world, mm-hmm. higher than secular men. And so this is why the statistics get so skewed, because if you just do a study on evangelicals,
2: mm-hmm. you're
1: going to get men who are better than secular men and men who are worse
2: than yeah. secular
1: men. And so the statistics are going to be misleading. And this is one reason we haven't quite caught, you know, that our, that our committed right. Christian men are doing well, and it's time for us to support them and encourage them. We haven't found that because... We didn't see through the statistics. So this is a very important study. Mm-hmm. And Brad Wilcox, who I mentioned before, has done the largest study. And so that's the one I recommend if anyone wants to follow up on it.
2: Mm-hmm. But it is
1: very academic. Um, yeah. So, so uh, I wanted to popularize that and get it out into the Christian well, world where men can be encouraged.
0: I am so glad you did that uh, for that very reason, to give a real accurate depiction. I mean, if you're the real McCoy, this makes all the difference in the world for the good. If you're a phony, this makes all the difference in the world for the bad. And the way I think you describe it, maybe you want to say something about this, that that the phonies don't have the spiritual substance and the spiritual convictions, uh, but they do read, man is supposed to be the head of the household. And so then they find justification for being a tyrant from their shallow Christian conviction um, and being a tyrant in their their non-Christian behavior. Uh, catch that out for us a little bit.
1: Yeah, so I do get asked by people sometimes, that, well, why would they be worse than secular men, right? I mean, mm-hmm. why aren't they just the same? And apparently the reason is that they feel they have religious justification for their toxic behavior.
2: Mm-hmm. In other
1: words, the secular guy who's mistreating his wife and kids doesn't feel like God is blessing him, like, mm-hmm. is that God, that he has religious permission for acting that way. But the Christian, the nominal Christian, is taking words like headship and submission out of the Bible um, and then feels that he has religious justification for what he's doing. But what he's doing is not not taking the biblical meaning of those terms he's mm-hmm. cherry picking yeah um instead he's infusing those words with meaning from the secular script for masculinity because the second thing that we need to respond to you know another objection is oh well it's the theology itself that causes these men to be abusive mm-hmm. and the answer is clearly not because the men who believe it and live it <laughs>
2: mm-hmm. are doing very well that's right so
1: clearly it's not the theology that's causing it in my book, I say it's because they are infusing these words with secular meaning. So actually, that's why we need to understand the secular script, by the way, yeah. because so many Christian men or men who claim the evangelical label are in fact living out a secular mm-hmm. definition of masculinity.
0: There are two movies come to mind, one you mentioned in your book, and one that I just happen to cherish from my boyhood, um, that, that give a, a picture of the kind of thing we're talking about. One of, the one I'm thinking about is Old Yeller. Uh, You know, the the Disney film uh, with Tommy Kirk and and, uh, Kevin Corcoran and this frontier family, Uh, dad has to go away to do something for a few months. And so Tommy Kirk is like 13 years old. His dad gives him the gun and he said, okay. This is your job. You plow the field. You take care of the women, mom and the kid, and, and Moochie, You know the that was the nickname for this uh, Kevin Costner, and and uh, you it's your job. And and what's evident there now? This is a '50s movie, um, so it's 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 more in the modern. But it's picking up. I think that mindset, that colonial mindset. They were still in touch with that when the writers made this movie. This guy, this kid, wanted to. Shoulder the responsibilities that a man shoulders. He wanted to do the man's job, and uh, and he did. In fact, he got injured in one point of the movie by wild pigs as he's trying to rescue his brother who's doing something stupid. You know, um, so that's that's one. That's a picture of this. What you're talking about this this pre-colonial uh, real man uh, and good man are the same. They understood it this way, and and I and young men wanted to be that way. They wanted to be considered good real men, so to speak. Um, and then you mentioned The Magnificent Seven, which is one of my favorite movies. And you know, I saw it when it first came out, what, 64 or whatever it was, and and uh, all the great, uh, very male, very masculine men that are in there that are gunmen, and they have to rescue these villagers. Uh, and uh, what you mention in your book is how how they really play against type because even though they are... It cast as these characters, and they are these characters. They have a an evening of reflection about how empty the life is and how how it's it's not it it's not how it's what they have, what they're stuck with the road they chose. But it, it's not glamorous. And then that wonderful conversation between the Charles Bronson character and the three boys or four Mexican boys who admire him because he's a gunman. And then they say they're. Your dad, I, I get choked up just thinking of this scene. You characterize it in the, in the book. Uh, and many of you saw this movie, you, you know, and he, 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 they said, our dads are cowards. And he grabs a kid and he spanks him on the butt. And he said, don't you ever say that. And he starts lecturing. This is Charles Bronson. He's a tough guy, right? And he said, you think I'm a brave man because I carry a gun. Your parents carry responsibility. And I don't have the courage courage to do that. And it's such a beautiful characterization of the kind of contrast that you're talking about here between what has been you how you characterize a good man and a real man.
1: Yes. Um I I have been waiting to use that story. <laughs> <laughs> Where's the best book to use this story? Yeah. yeah. Because when I saw the Charles bon, especially this Charles Bonson scene, yeah. when he says, you know, you're you know, you think I have, I have courage because I carry a gun. And then he says, your parents, your fathers. Yes,
2: that's right. That's right.
1: Specifically, your fathers carry responsibility for your mothers, for your sisters, for you. Right. I have never had this kind of courage. Right. right. And, you know, for him to be able to characterize, whoever wrote that, (laughs) um, Mm -hmm. to characterize the father's role as a type of courage. And that's a type of courage that's sadly, becoming less common. Mm -hmm. You realize that here in America, 40% of children live apart from their natural Mm -hmm. fathers, and many Mm -hmm. of them never see them. Mm -hmm. It's the highest rate of single parenthood in the world.
2: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
1: So we have a lot of men who are not coming coming up with that kind of courage to simply be responsible for their families. Mm-hmm. And of course, the ones who, uh, who, who suffer the most are the boys mm-hmm. because boys grow up without a day-to-day model of what it means to be the good man, uh, um, Everyone knows it's it's it used to be a left right issue, but now it's on both sides. We yeah, all know that boys right. growing up without fathers are more likely to have trouble in school, to drop out of school, to be addicted to sex, to drugs or alcohol, to engage in sexual activity outside of marriage, And to, to end up behind bars. That's I used right. to work for prison fellowship, as as you know, of course, <laughs> and um we knew. The majority of the young people, young men behind bars were from fatherless homes, especially violent crimes.
0: Well, you you uh, talk that, in your book about the phrase you use is "boy crisis" and "daddy deficit." And and, and uh, if I understand the way you ended up developing this, the daddy deficit um, creates a boy crisis, but the boy crisis survives into adulthood to create kind of the daddy deficit because of the kinds of things the culture ends up. Uh, subtly affirming in men is what creates the toxicity.
1: Yes, and uh, to, and to put it in historical context again, um, you can see it already with the Industrial Revolution, because as fathers were taken out of the home t- to work in factories and offices, young boys were going up without fathers, their father's supervision, mm-hmm. and already back then in the literature, people began to complain that boys were becoming wild and unruly and rambunctious and rule-breaking. In other words, the idea of boys will be boys, that's when it started. Mm-hmm. People didn't used to say that. People used to expect boys to be just as well-behaved as girls. If anything, more well-behaved. All the way back to the ancient Greeks and Romans, they thought that men were more virtuous than women, mm-hmm. that they were morally superior. The, the, the rationale was this. They thought that the insight into right and wrong is a rational insight. And they felt that men were more rational. Right. And therefore, men are more virtuous. Yeah, The word virtue actually comes from the Latin. V-I-R means man, mm. as in the word virile. Mm. So even the word virtue had overtones of manly strength and honor. And so nobody had ever said, oh, well, boys will be boys until the fathers were taken out of the home. Mm-hmm. And then yeah. boys began to be uh, unruly, wild, misbehaving, rule breaking. And uh, the, the leading psychologists of the day put it this way Never before in American history has the American boy been so wild. And it's because he's half orphaned. Half, isn't that a, mm-hmm. an interesting face? Wow. Half orphaned. Wow. In other words, you know, his dad's just not there. It's like mm-hmm. being half an orphan. Um, and then he said, and boys are now being left up to female guidance mm-hmm. in home, church, and school. Mm-hmm. And of course, a boy doesn't necessarily want to follow female guidance because he thinks that makes him effeminate
2: mm-hmm. and
1: so there developed what historians call boy culture you know, the idea that being a real boy this is the this is what preceded the real man, as mm-hmm. you so aptly put it. The real boy was the boy who was a misbehaving rascal
2: mm-hmm.
1: um even the literature of the day reveals it yeah. the best known being. Tom Sawyer and Huck Finn, right, right, right,
0: right, and and
1: that was a shift. It was a shift because before that, literature for children was always moralistic to give boys a a positive role model of being a good boy. Uh But now the now the protagonist was a misbehaving boy, a, a prankster, a mischievous. At any rate, as you as you noted, i'm going I'm putting in the historical context, as right. those boys grew up, what did they do? They brought boy culture with them. Yeah. And so the nineteenth century saw a huge increase, drinking, gambling, crime, prostitution, the number of brothels mushroomed. Hmm. Um, sometimes a single fact can help crystallize it. In eighteen thirty, Americans drank three times as much as they do today.
0: That was an amazing statistic when I read that in the book. Yeah, because people drank quite a bit today. But um, you know, when I was a kid, and there's so many. We're running out of time here. It's amazing. I just I've offed all the commercials so we can just talk continuously. The book we're talking about, of course, is the toxic war on masculinity. um, How Christianity reconciles the sexes. In other words, there is a. There is toxicity, and there's a battle about that in our culture, and it's it's got all kinds of details that Nancy is very very careful to deal with and help you understand in the book, and, and Rx towards the end. Um, uh, there is a reconciliation here of the the uh, of these two different ways of. Being a man, and that is understanding Christianity properly and applying it in a rich way to our lives day to day. And statistics have shown, as you pointed out, Nancy, that this is what produces the best kind of home, family, children, marriage, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, by all all assessments. I, I I By the way, I one of my favorite shows when I was a kid. See, I was born in 1950, and. Uh, uh, we, I think we share a lot of the same lifetime, you know, culturally speaking, and uh, and I loved watching uh, Father Knows Best with Robert Young and Jane Wyatt. It started in 1954 and uh, had six seasons or something. I loved watching that as a kid because this was—I um, had a very paternalistic fi- uh, home, uh, but, it, but I mean, uh, Robert Young was the best of dads, you know, and even the Mickey Rooney movies from before our time, you know, when her, his father was a judge, you know, he was kind of a rascally boy. That was the characteristic of this Mickey Rooney character, but he could always go back to dad to give him advice and whatever. So even with the Industrial Revolution and the jobs pulling dads out of the homes and everything, there still was this kind of believing remnant, it seemed like, that would still hold the line. And characteristically, these were people who deeply committed to Christian values. Would that be a fair statement?
1: Oh, yes. Um, it, I, I try to be um, encouraging throughout the book by showing that all along— All along, there were Christian men, Christian fathers, who were living out a biblical understanding of fatherhood and family and so on. Um, Because, you know... as you know, Greg, I'm an apologist at heart. Mm-hmm. And so my main goal is to show why the secular world gets masculinity so wrong. You know, I want to equip Christians to stand against the secular definition of masculinity, the denigration of masculinity. And so I, I don't make my major theme, you know, well, what were Christian families doing? I I, I put that in as, as sort of a, don't forget
2: mm-hmm. that all
1: along there were Christians uh, who, who were in fact living out a Christian understanding. And you, you mentioned the, that the book has pictures. <laughs> um, you know, when you're dealing with history, it helps a lot to have pictures. One of my favorite pictures is in the section on don't forget there were Christian fathers because it shows a father surrounded by his family. You know, his kids are around him. Like there's a kid in his lap. His the wife is sewing, but mm-hmm. next to them, and he's reading a book to the family.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And, uh, and, and of course the, they don't know for sure, but it's probably a Bible.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, At any rate, that image of the father who still, even though he's out of the home most of the day, when he comes home, he's coming home to his second job. That's right. And he's making a point of helping the kids with the homework, uh, participating in the housework. And after the homework's done, they sit around and they they gather on the piano and sing, or they gather around and and read a favorite book together. And it was amazing how much um, even, even the secular historians one of my books is on the history of fatherhood, and even the secular historian mentions how much the Christian father continued to be a model of fatherhood, even for the men who were no longer active Christians. Mm-hmm. This is fascinating. He said the Protestant Christian husband was still setting the tone that that Men who were becoming irreligious still followed that Protestant pattern for raising their own kids.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: They knew that that was best for their kids.
0: Yeah, yeah, so good.
1: So, so you right. and, and of course I do have a whole chapter on you. Know, today, is it possible to sort of flex the workplace? Are we really we're not just stuck with the Industrial Revolution. The pandemic taught a lot of people that there are ways to sort of flex the workplace. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, just today, Greg, I looked at a Harvard study. And it was titled the title was something like this: during the pandemic, fathers got closer to their children, and they don 't want to lose that
0: oh yeah that 's great i sixty eight
1: percent sixty eight percent of fathers said they did not want to go back to the office full-time. They wanted some kind of hybrid situation.
0: Because of what they gained, and and that certainly is possible. It's an Rx for what we're facing. I feel real badly, I I was going to say, I'm giving the short shrift to the last part of your book, which is an Rx a lot for Christian families who are struggling with toxic masculinity, and a lot of times the wives get blamed, and the pastor's Go along with the husbands, not the wives, who are the victims, and and you talk a lot about that. Um, I just uh, and so my apologies that we haven't done this for two hours, and we've only had one hour here to do this. But I hope it it's given a really good introduction to your unbelievable amount of research. I, I mean, we're both writers, but I look at this and I say man, that's hard stuff. You know, I just had 85,000 words in in street smarts, you know, and I thought I was working. This is more than that. And, and it's you have so many footnotes. All the research that went into this is, makes it such a superb work and so helpful for Christians in their own families and also dealing with the kind of challenges of toxic masculinity that they hear in the culture. It's there. But the remedy is uh, not women's liberation, but the Christian understanding of reality.
1: The story of reality.
0: There you go. Have I
1: heard this somewhere before?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Nancy, thanks so much for spending time with us, and I hope we get a chance to face face it somewhere along the line in the future. Thanks for your help on this book.
1: Thanks so much. You have such penetrating questions that it's a joy to talk with you.
0: Thanks. Nancy Piercy, The Toxic War on Masculinity, How Christianity Reconciles the Sexes. Greg Kokel here for Stand to Reason. Give them heaven, friends. Bye-bye now.